Hello and welcome to Emerge, Evolve, Lead, a podcast for people in recovery from addiction who want to be better leaders. I got clean and sober when I was 24, and then I started my corporate career. After several decades, I left that job and created Emerge Leadership Academy, where I train leaders and coach people in recovery who are ready to step up in their career. My name is Maureen Rossgem, and I'll be your host. Welcome back to Emerge, Evolve, Lead. My guest today is Dr. Michael Jaglith, and he earned a PhD and became a chemist, but left the corporate world to help men live more meaningful and fulfilling lives. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about Michael's journey into recovery from porn addiction and how his faith is a big part of his journey. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me here. I'm doing excellent, and I'm very excited for our conversation. Yeah, thanks. Me too. Um, So, Michael, why don't we start off by you just sharing with the listeners a little bit about what your life is like today, where you live, and, you know, what your family life is like and what you do for a living. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So my wife and I live up in northern Idaho, up north Mm. of Coeur d'Alene, who those might know the area. Uh, We have snow on the ground still right now outside at time of recording. We have six children aging range from two to 11. We have almost 50 chickens. We have dogs. We have five acres of property and we're right next to mountains and beaches. We were downhill skiing just last winter. It's we love where we live. What do I do? I tell people I have the best job. So I'm a life coach. What does that mean? It means that people come to me when they want something to change in their life and they can't figure out how to get a change on their own. And I get to join them on the journey as they go through I'm stuck and I can't do this thing. And oh my goodness, now I'm free from it. And it is just such a rewarding, would be an understatement process to watch guys go through. I think all of our listeners will be able to identify because we're all past uh, addiction in our life. So that is that, that freedom from addiction uh, is an amazing feeling of, oh, thank God I get to actually live my life now instead of just be constantly worrying about where am I going to get my next fix kind of thing. So um, I also want to just mention that I am a motorcycle rider adventurer with my husband, Paul, and we have been all over the country. I've, I've actually been to every state except for Idaho. Oh my, you're missing the best. <laughs> I shouldn't say just Idaho though. Idaho and Oregon and Washington are the last three and Alaska. Those are the last four states that I need in the continental U S to say I've been to every single state. So believe me, it is on our bucket list and we will definitely be there. So maybe we can come by and visit. <laughs> Absolutely. If you make it through the area, hit the Northern edge. It's the yeah. most beautiful there is. That's what I heard. may have a biased opinion. Well, of course you get to live there. Did you grow up there? No, I grew up in Northern Michigan. Okay. And actually it's been a long journey from there to where I'm now. And so I grew up in a relatively poor and unfortunately rather abusive household. And it, it got bad enough that when I was in sixth grade, my dad went to jail for 10 years for abuse committed to the kids. And growing up in this household, obviously my connection with my father was pretty bad, right? And then my mother, for those who haven't read about triangulation, it's a really important thing to read about, but my brother and I were badly triangulated. And so young Michael doesn't know how to take in love. How do you accept love? And because obviously my father isn't connecting, my mother is over her head, single mother had no job when my father left. And so Michael learned early on to take in love through sexuality. 
And I remember still the very first time I had a sexual experience with a young gal and it just, all of a sudden it felt like this piece of me that had always been missing was there. I'm like, oh my mm. goodness, this is what it feels like to finally have love and acceptance and to be wanted by somebody. And that's kind of the beginning of where my addiction started. You know, most of us do. I mean, it does. It feels so good. It feels good in your body, in your heart, in your emotions, right? I mean, it feels good on almost every level, unless you were raised in like I like I was a little bit in in Catholicism, where it's you're told no, no, no. You know, like don't touch yourself. Don't you know, touch anybody else before marriage even, and you're bad and you're going to hell if you do. Like, that's how I felt when I was having my first sexual experiences in early um, adulthood. And so I drank to mask, right? To mask the yeah. pain and the shame and the guilt of of doing all, all of those, um, you know, what was deemed promiscuous things then. So, so what happened? How did your addiction uh, proceed? Well, it turns out, Maureen, that real women aren't quite as compliant as a man would like when he's desperately seeking female attention for uses and gratification, even beyond the sexual, which is really what I was doing, mm. although I would never have admitted at the time. And naturally, as you get older, you eventually discover pornography. And I remember my friends joking out loud saying, well, the real world girls may not be full of love, but the girls on the internet have no end how much they will love you. And we would say that out loud as if that was a point of pride. And looking back, mm -hmm. I'm just so sad for my younger self that I think I actually believed that. And not literally, but like I was so desperate to feel accepted, to feel wanted, to feel chosen, to feel anything. Like I think most of my life was pretty numb. And I should note at this point, I was drinking like a fish as well. It was kind of sad how much I could drink back when in this phase of my life. But I, I kept trying to find like love and meaning and I would meet girls and one of the most vicious parts about an addiction to pornography is the more you turn to draw your sense of connection from that digital, the less able you are to draw it with a real human being. Uh -huh. uh, and we read about this now, young men now are so addicted to pornography that they're literally unable to function with uh -huh. a real human being. And this has led to all sorts of secondary effects. But you kind of have to understand a little bit what pornography does to you neurologically. If it's okay, I'd love to dive off into that, just indulging my chemistry background sure. just a bit here. If you do an MRI scan of my brain, and right now, for those who can't see, I'm holding up just a cheap big pen, nothing particularly fancy. When I look at this pen, there's a part of my brain that lights up with the analytical part that says, oh, there's a tool. I can use this pen. I could write with it. I could maybe, if I'm desperate, try to see if I can't reach that reset button the computer you can never quite get. But now I look at Maureen's face and a totally different part of my brain lights up. It's the deals with connection. It deals with nonverbal communication, trying to read the subtle ticks of her eyes and her face. And all of this is happening in the background without me even being aware of it. But here's where it gets really sticky. If I'm addicted to pornography and I look at another woman, I don't see face of human being. I see tool. And the part of my brain that activates mm. is physically different. They're just different locations in the brain than the part that activates for connection. And so in a very real sense, I have cut off my ability to connect with a woman because I can only see her as a tool. And this is just horrifying when you really start to think about this. I think a lot of guys think, oh, it's just not that big of a deal. It just doesn't matter that much. 
But in reality, we're amputating our own ability to have the thing we say we want most. Which is relationship and love and commitment and all of the things, you know, emotional um, connection. So that's very interesting. And also I would, I would think that uh, like with any addiction, we get hit hits of dopamine and you oh, know, yeah. all of those kinds of chemicals in our brain that says, yeah, this is good. I want more of this. And so it's harder and harder when those neural pathways are connected to, to, to get out of those ruts or to change our focus to something else that, because then, you know, the pain receptors are, are going off instead. Totally. That's some of what the research about pornography shows. And this is why for those people who are addicted, they find that they have to keep ratcheting up the intensity of the pornography. And it can start off with the almost innocent, but not, and it'll it get ratcheted till people will be like, I can't believe you're watching that. That's so hardcore because your brain, the dopamine hit just has to keep getting stronger and stronger. And that's, that's not at all the same when you have a relationship with a human being in a consensual, you know, especially ideally marriage setting, and you have that dynamic back and forth of engagement. The dopamine is, is also balanced by other hormones with pornography, everything else, everything of balance is stripped away. Mm. And so you literally start. I remember when I was a sophomore in college, there were probably about four hours a day when I wasn't in class or sleeping that I didn't have pornography on. Oh my. It was just everywhere. Like we would play poker games at night in the dorm rooms and have at least one, if not two or three or four screens going with pornography. So that guys could just kind of let their eyes dance around to whichever one fit them best. And it just sort of desensitizes you even to that. I'm guessing it's the oh, same so thing much. with like drinking and drugging. So, you know, we, we progress, we pretty soon a six pack's not enough. And then you're doing shots and then, you know, a quart's not enough. You got to have a half a, you know, a, a pint or whatever, you know, it gets bigger and more. And then pretty soon you're just, you know, some people have done unbelievable mixtures of stuff and taking drugs at the same time that, you know, then they go to the heavy stuff or shooting up or whatever it is. It's, it does progress to such a, a, a horrible extent. And so when did you become aware and how did you begin to uh, get yourself off of that? And, and I, I'm interested to know about your relationship. How, how long have you been married and how long so I've been, been married now? 12 years. Okay. And Let's, let's fast forward a little bit. I think it was about partway through college. I said to myself, you know, Michael, this isn't healthy. Like I can see what this is doing to you. I could see that I, I could barely even talk to a woman at this stage. Like oh. it was so hard. And I, I kind of knew I wanted to change. And so as with all addictions, the best way I decided was brute knuckle force, knuckle down. I will control this and make this thing stop. I will right? swear off it. Yes. Yes. No, no. And so <laughs> I did manage to rein it in enough that I was able to, I had several relationships through graduate school that I thought might be serious and didn't work out. And then I graduate, I get my first real job. I worked over in Hillsborough, Oregon, actually, it was a research engineer and I meet the woman and we get married. And I said to myself, aha, I'm getting married. My problems are solved. Oh, oh no. No, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> As it turns out, marriage does not automatically solve all your problems. It does not automatically make you feel infinitely loved and want and desired and everything good. It's, it's a process. Right. And sure enough, the honeymoon period ends and my wife and I have a fight one evening. I remember it the first evening after we were married and I couldn't handle it. Like I could just, that withdrawal feeling came back, that feeling of, oh no, I'm not loved. I'm not good enough. The desperation came back in. And I remember 
logging in, going on and clicking on a porn website when she was asleep. Yeah. And she didn't find out, like I was pretty sneaky and it was probably a couple of years before she found out that I had started doing porn again. And, you know, I, I think at this point I, I, and she was very gentle and loving. I know some women get really upset when they discover their husbands are doing pornography. And I don't think that's ever helpful. I, I think compassion and love always have to be part of the mixture, no matter where you are in life. And I remember thinking to myself, golly, I, maybe I don't know what to do to get out of this. And it was about this time that thankfully through a, I would say divinely inspired encounter with another man, the product, the subject came up of what happened in my own family of origin. Cause I yeah. had literally Marine, I had taken that whole thing. I had put it in an iron box. I had buried it as deep as I could and then yeah. covered it with gravel. And I was like, Nope, never going there. You understand that's the thing I escaped. Right. I got out of that mess. I'm not going back there. That's in the past. We don't even want to look at that. Yeah. There's nothing good in there. But that's where the healing has to begin. So what that's happened? Exactly. So you got into finally looking at your own shit and being able to do some healing. So there was some rough stuff, obviously, that went down between my dad and me, my dad and my mother, my dad and my sister. Um, there's just a lot of, a lot of really bad things that happened there. And one of the things I realized was that by not dealing with that, by not going back to the childhood and through therapy, it was meant much, much therapy. And one side note on that, I, I tell people, if you find, if you go to therapy and you try somebody out and it's not working for you, don't give up on therapy, find somebody else. There's, in my opinion, very, very few people who are both good therapists and fit you. So keep searching till you find that one because it's so worth it. And it took me several. The first three or four therapists I tried, I was so angry because they just didn't help me at all. But ultimately, what I had to do is I had to realize that I wasn't enough on my own. I wasn't able to just step in and rewrite history, but I had to confront my past. I had to, with a lot of careful soul searching, go back, realize, understand even why my father had done what he had done. Part of this is I read a lot of books. My therapist would assign me books to read all under the idea of trying to understand what he had done and why he had done it. Because ultimately I had to come to the point where I could forgive him. Cause isn't and, it true that hurt people hurt people? Oh, such a great quote. I, I, get, I credit John Maxwell for that. And I think it's so true. Yeah. And we do it through funny ways. We don't even see ourselves do it so often. So talk to me a little bit about um, this forgiveness. I, I love this topic because we often not only have to forgive our, our perpetrators and, and, you know, predators and, and people that really hurt us and victimized us, but we also need to, we need to forgive ourselves. So what was oh, that's your, just your as process? Hard. Yeah. So this is where that faith piece for me came in as well. And I, I have to bring that in at this point because I was pretty mad at myself and, and that's pretty mild. I would say I was disgusted with myself yeah, at this point. I was like, too. I loathed myself. I, I, I have to confess that there were some gals when I was in dating in college that I heard, like I, there was never anything unconsensual, but I took advantage and I didn't always speak with the most uprightness of truth and sometimes leveraged alcohol more than might've been honorable. And I was starting to see myself in a sexual light as a just yucky person. Like I was pretty gross and I was pretty mad at myself. And I realized that some of that was the reflection of this anger I had never dealt with towards my father and my mother, but I also realized a lot of that was towards me. And so much there, the solution came from, because I realized I've been trying for decades 
grab harder, hold harder. You can do it. And to surrender that control and say, I, I, I can't. You mean the willpower, the willpower that doesn't really work. It and doesn't hold. Surrender. Yeah. So this is a good topic. So um, what was the process of surrender for you? So for me, it, it, it so much came back to the faith and it comes back to this acknowledgement that there is something in the universe greater than I, and that's something that there is. I call God, people can call it whatever they like. I, I credit God as the creator of the universe. And whether he did that through the Big Bang or whatever, who knows, who cares? It doesn't really matter right now anyways. I'm here now. He put me here now. He chose and he allowed this stuff to happen. But for some reason, he thinks I'm, there's still something lovable about me. And I know that because if he didn't love me, I'd poof out of existence. And when I looked at that perspective, and then I was able to enter a little more deeply into the faith and say, wow, God, what if God did love me? Even that right there, by the way, took forever. The yeah. possibility that God could love disgusting, despicable me. But that relationship, um, I, I mentioned a fortunate contact with young Ben. I'll call him Ben. And he kind of stepped into my life as well as an advisor and mentor con concurrently with the therapy. He had a similar life story behind him. And he, there's a lot of campfire talks. And for us having a beer around a campfire wasn't a problem. And so there was oftentimes what we do is just have a beer on a campfire and just talk about stuff. And I was able to say things that I couldn't say to other people and realize that by saying, gosh, Ben, I, I can't do this. I'm not good enough to do this. I'm failing at this. Him to say, yeah, we all do. All of a sudden it was like, oh my gosh, I didn't get rejected. I didn't get torn to shreds by the wolves, which is what like, I think the deep fear is. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's more than fear, right? The shame that we hide behind and we think we're so alone and to find out that we're not alone, that every human has a shadow side that has yep. this darkness within them that they need to uh, confront and look at and actually put out there for other people to see. And when those people that are, that are trusted and safe, confidant type of people, not just any people, not anybody. But, those, but around the campfire in a safe space and, and really doing that and, and being just like, yep. Yeah, okay. Welcome to the rodeo. It's, you know, you're okay. You're good. You don't have to do it anymore. That sort of just affirmation is so, so powerful in our 12 step program. We call it the, you know, the fourth step and really admitting to God, to yourself and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Yep. That was so powerful. I think in this stage, I realized that in a lesser way, I had been becoming my father, that by denying the wound there, that I was coming and then by, but, and then it was so interesting because all that reading the therapist told me to do about understanding my father suddenly rebounded back to helping me understand about me. Mm. And then the acceptance from Ben, the understanding that was coming as I'm reading about how the human brain works when it's wounded and hurt. And combined with this new growing relationship and faith that the possibility is that it's possible the infinite creator of the universe might actually love me, despite all odds, despite my best judgment, he still might love me. It made it possible. And I was able to start surrendering control a little bit. And I remember talking to my wife about this. And, and I want to caution people, if you're struggling with pornography, your wife may not necessarily be, or your spouse, could win, plenty of women are addicted as well, may not necessarily be your first confidant because they're oftentimes wounded by that action as well. And so it helps to have somebody outside the particular cycle of wounding to start to engage this process with.
I also think, don't you, that sometimes even the people that we attract are sometimes the one wing butterflies, right? They already have wounds of their own that they oh, need very to much. deal with, or they wouldn't attracted you in the first place, most likely. So yeah, we, we do our own work in the program and we don't make our significant other the, the only confidant or friend or person that we tell, we talk to, we need to bring it outside the family. I agree. All right. So I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Oh, no, please. It was, it was very valuable. I've read a lot about codependency and a lot of times the dating cycles is very complicated dance and says never verbally, here's my wound. Can you survive with this wound? Can you help with this wound? Oh, you're wounded too. Hey, look, our wounds fit together. Great. This will work. <laughs> That's pretty funny, but so accurately true. Right. Yeah. We it, think that, you know, well, I'm half a person and you're a half a person. So together we make a whole. No, that's so sophomoric when you think about it. Right. It's but, so true. It, but it feels like our psyche, you know, just wants to fill that hole inside of us. But the only way to fill it is to do your own work and to yes. do your own forgiveness and to really find that part of you. This is my, my feeling that is divine within you. That's connected to yes. divinity. That is your internal guidance system. That is the truth about you, not the ego, shame and guilt and all that other crap. So yeah, that's good. I, part of my journey in particular as well was learning that this young Michael, this abusive family who like so many children took the weight of a family marriage, his parents' family marriage and family family all on his own shoulders. It's my fault. I didn't perform well enough. I'm the reason why my dad was abusive. I'm the reason why their marriage ended. And it's such a common weight that as children we take onto it, whether in little ways or big ways and learning to look at that young boy and not blame him, right. but instead have compassion. That is, that was one of the hardest steps for me as well. Having compassion for yourself. Yeah. Yes, very much. Yeah. So I, I don't know if it's possible to have true self-forgiveness without compassion. No, you, you it's, I don't think it is possible. I think compassion is super important. And sometimes when I'm leading my clients through um, a, a particularly tough time, like, you know, maybe they cheated on their spouse or something and they're trying to forgive themselves. And, and there's this idea that um, if you can go in and just treat your inner child, like the wounded um, five-year-old, you wouldn't just, if that person was bullied, that little child, if you're, if you saw a five-year-old being bullied on the beach, for example, and somebody kicks over their sandcastle and runs away laughing and they're crying, you don't come over and say, oh, suck it up. Just build another one. You know, you, you would take them into your arms and, and cuddle them and, and quiet them and nurture them. And that's what, that's the kind of feeling you need to give to yourself. Um, when you're, when you're going through a tough time, when you're judging yourself and when you think you should be better, it's like, just be okay. Just be okay. This too shall pass. It's so common when I'm dealing with an adult male client who has kids and we'll be exhibiting the same thing, talking about an issue from his childhood. And he'll say something that's so judgmental about the young person himself. Mm -hmm. I say, okay, pause. We're going to put the story aside for a second. I want you to imagine a similar story happening to your son. He's like, oh, his eyes pop open. He's like, oh. And I say, what would you want to say to him? And he'll say the most compassionate thing ever. And I'll say, great. And I'll say those same words to your own self. And they'll be like, oh, Michael. I can't do that. You don't understand. Here's my 300 word treaties on why I don't deserve that compassion. Logically, it just doesn't make sense. 
And it's so interesting if we look into this judgment we hold for ourselves, almost contempt. I've been reading a lot about contempt lately and how contempt is just utter toxicity. Yep. And it just destroys so much. Um, yeah. Renee Brown it, says it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a toxic mixture. Contempt is a toxic mixture of disgust. And what's the other thing? Anger, something, something like something. that. But, but anyways, it's, it is a toxic mis- mixture, whatever you say, you should never have it for yourself and never have it for anybody else. For either. Anyone, but yeah. right. Just get rid of that or, but see it as, okay, it's part of me. That is, that's part of my shadow. Okay. We're going to love you to health. And, you know, we all need our egos. We need our shadow, right? There's part of that that does guide us through. I mean, it, it helped you to survive your childhood, right? Of course. It helped you to survive, but it doesn't do any good in the relationships. So what do you do, um, Michael, when you've done your work, but then your family members don't, or, you know, your wife says, okay, well, you just handle your problem. And, and now I'm not talking about your wife specifically, but like the the one wing butterfly, whoever your partner is, doesn't want to do the work. Do you, you know, is it, how do you, first off, it's super common. There always has to be one who goes first. And I tell people marriage is like a two-legged thing. If one leg moves, the marriage, the body has to start moving, no matter how much that other leg wants to dig it and pretend like it's not going to move. But I also tell people, it's not your job to fix the other person. Your job in a serious committed relationship in a marriage is to love them as best as you possibly can, to, to in the faith tradition, to pray for them, to when the openings come to lovingly with great compassion, say, maybe here's a resource that might help but never to force it because you can't do it. Uh, in coaching world, we define this idea we call a manual for our spouse. So if you buy a dishwasher, right? There's a manual that says to get clean dishes, push this button, then this button, right? And the manual for our spouse goes for to get Michael good feelings, spouse must wash dishes and do, <laughs> and make bed, whatever, right? You're right. Whatever your manual oh, is. I we all have a it. foot massage and, you know, and money in my account. No. <laughs> oh, I like your manual better. I'll take your manual. <laughs> I guess what I tell people is you just can't find happiness outside yourself in what other people are doing. You, it's an internal job. And you, and you may set yourself up for a deeper failure if you try. Right. So it's even more so like if I try, I've tried many times in my marriage, especially early on to communicate a very complicated manual to my wife. Wife, attend these words. These are the <laughs> actions you must perform if you wish Michael to be happy. Very good. Chop, chop, go about and do it now. And it never works because they're a different person. Right. And no other person could ultimately make you happy. It just right. doesn't work that way. What I also learned in that relationship that um, that the deep lift listening and empathetic listening is so important. So that if my partner is telling me something that is painful for him, that maybe I triggered in him or maybe some, some behavior that I did or whatever that, that he took a hit on, that I just let him have his feelings. I don't get defensive. I don't take that on. Um, I can, I can certainly curb that behavior because now I've been told, but I don't, I don't take shame or blame or any of that because as we work through our stuff, we just have to be able to tell the other person what it is, where we're feeling the pain. And sometimes just sharing it is like, okay, we're in this together. Right. I think that's so true, but it also, I think highlights if you have a spouse that doesn't want to do the work yeah. and you have done the work, it enables a different type of conversation because if I'm badly broken and my spouse is badly broken, she shares anything that triggers me. 
it's really hard for me to control how I respond because it touches that deep shame that already lives in my heart. But if I've done some work and that shame has been partly redeemed, it doesn't settle as deeply. If she says something that previously had triggered me, it enables me to respond differently. And this is commonly, by the way, it's my wife and I, I work with men and my wife works with women. And we have plenty of cross referrals that generally about six to 12 months after the first person starts working, the other person picks up and says, oh, wow, my spouse has really changed. Maybe I should check this out too. <laughs> That's what we say all the time in the program. Boy, it's just amazing how everybody else seems to get better when I work on myself. <laughs> right. Yeah, it really is true. Um, it did happen in my parents' relationship that my um, my parents split up because of my dad's addiction, and my mom continued to work on herself, but he he didn't really get it. So when you when you're operating on two different wavelengths and two different vibrational you know, paths, it, it really does take two. You can't just have one person doing and the other person not. Um, but that's, you know, everybody's situation is different, obviously. Um, but it comes around full circle. Have you healed relationships with your siblings and your mom? So praise the Lord. Yes. And in, in my own situation is actually somewhat similar to yours, where unfortunately, my father, I think he's done a little bit of work, but by and large, he's just withdrawn. And he's withdrawn from almost everything at this point, mm. except for his dog. He loves his dog. That's, that's, that's one real connection left. With my mother, it was hard because it's harder in the situation where I mentioned triangulation earlier, and it's hard because you don't see the damage that occurs as much in the, when the spouse that stayed and the child relationship. With my siblings, we are a lot better. It's unfortunate that we're so geographically separated, but there's been enough healing and they, and my sister in particular has done enough work that we've managed to reconnect. And it's almost like building a new relationship in my experience. Like there's everything that happened before when the terrible stuff happened, there's the work each of us gone through. And now we're like, oh, you're a new person. I'm a new person. Let's get to know each other. At least, for, at least that's been my experience with my sister. Yeah, well, that's good. And you're breaking the whole generational uh, chain by you know, having this beautiful family, this growing family and being able to not be the dad that, you know, you had and to really be able to give them a whole new level of, of upskill and how to have a healthy relationship and how to be a healthy human being. So um, I just give you so much credit for that. And also um, for having the vulnerability to share your story with our listeners and to um, just be the, uh, healing and healer that you are to help other men through these kinds of difficulties. Is there anything else you want to share before we wrap up and please tell people how they can reach you? Absolutely. I think the one thing I have to reemphasize is something you said earlier, which is you are not alone. And to so many people, this was like the words that I was desperate for, because I thought I was the only, I thought I was just all by myself, but no matter what you're struggling with, whatever, it's an addiction to any different substance, porn, whatever, you're not alone. You can get help. You can find me at, I, uh, so I am, I am proudly a Catholic man. I am catholiclifecoachformen.com. You can find the podcast, same name, Catholic Life Coach for Men. If you're a lady and you'd like to talk to someone in the life coaching from a faith perspective, my wife is, I don't know, you can find her at what's called Made for Greatness. It comes from, I think, I've heard who, who the quote's from, but it's basically saying, you were not made for comfort, you were made for greatness. Oh, I love it. Okay, thank you so much for everything you had to share. Keep shining your light, Michael, because we the world definitely needs more um, more of that in the world. So thank you. 
Well, thank you so much for, me for having me. It's been a delight. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with your friends. You can visit us at EmergeLeadershipAcademy.com to take the quiz to find out what animal best represents your leadership style. And until next week, remember, you have so many leadership skills that you learned in recovery. Stop hiding because your contribution matters. Thank you.